0: hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the chase jarvis live show i'm chase jarvis your host this show is where i sit down with the world's top creatives entrepreneurs and thought leaders and unpack valuable and damn well better be actionable insights with the goal of helping you live your dreams in career in hobby and in life i'm getting actually i'm getting pretty good at that i know it now we're 35 episodes in I gotta figure it out. My guest today is Damon John, the shark from Shark Tank. You know him. This guy is a Renaissance man, people. He's the founder of FUBU, which is that clothing brand that you saw come up out of nowhere, and now chocks up more than six billion. In sales. He's one of, yes, indeed, one of the sharks on ABC's Shark Tank, along with Mr. Mark Cuban, who's been on this show before. And he's also the author of a great book, which I cannot recommend enough, called The Power of Broke, which he chalked up on the New York Times bestseller list. He's the CEO of Shark Branding, which also names folks like Muhammad Ali, the Kardashians, and Pitbull to their list of clients. And we talk extensively about a, a, a thing that's near and dear to me which is visualization and goals among lots of other things in this episode but he gets really specific 10 goals that he has one on a schedule of well, there's, he's got a 20-year goal two five-year goals And then seven goals that he wants to accomplish in six months. He outlines how he makes those goals. I think you'll find that fascinating. We do talk about FUBU and the birth of a company from zero to six billion in sales. It started off as a side hustle. He was selling hats, like knitted hats on the street corner. It's an amazing story. And we also talk about... Being lifelong learners, and what shows like this and other shows can do for someone who actually cares about learning for the sake of learning and not for some degree or a piece of paper or a thing. Like, what can you get out of investing in learning new shit all of the time? It's a really good interview. I know you're going to love it, but before we get to it, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Creative Live. CreativeLive is the world's largest hub for online creative education. Education in photo video, art design, music and audio, and the ability to make a living and a life in those disciplines. It's the highest quality, highly curated classes taught by the world's top experts. We're talking Pulitzer Prize winners, Oscar winners, Grammy award winners, New York Times best-selling authors, and the best entrepreneurs of our time. Names like Richard Branson, Mark Cuban, Ariana Huffington are on the platform. And you get classes taught from guys like Tim Ferriss, Lewis Howes, uh, Ramit Sethi. I, again, I could list uh, a thousand other names of the top photographers, designers, musicians. The best in class, you get it. Now, right now, if you're familiar with me and my work, you might be saying, "Well, wait a minute, isn't that a company that you started, Chase?" Well, yes, it is. In fact, Creative Live makes this entire podcast possible, and in fact, all of my long-standing Chase Jarvis Live shows. Creative Live has millions of students around the world. More than two billion minutes of education have been consumed on that video platform. So, you know, that's a little bit of the sort of the what and the how behind Creative Live. But here's the why, which I think is so critical. Creative Live exists to help you live your dreams in career, hobby, and life. In short, I started Creative Live with a bunch of really committed friends because we saw a, a big need in the world. We wanted to help our peers and friends and, and folks out there in the world transition to new careers, live new dreams, take the leap, if you will, into an entirely different sort of direction where you can leave that job, maybe your job, with the man and strike out on your own. I also saw my peers in the photo and design world needing to sort of up their skills and get ahead. And I saw friends who were happily working at at great companies but wanted to pursue their hobby to a next level that you know, might someday parlay into a side hustle. So, we built that platform. Uh, these classes at Creative Live are the most highly and authentically produced of any of the online video platforms you'll experience. The top experts, it's all shot with 48 cameras, all in HD, beautifully presented and accessible on desktop, tablet, mobile. You know, I stand for quality, and that's what Creative Live uh, puts out. To that end, I have also taken it upon myself to curate a handful of my very favorite classes and mix them in with some of the top performing classes on CreativeLive and I'll bake that into a landing page called creativelive.com slash hustle just for you. This community listens to our podcast here. So you should go there and you should check that out as a special thank you for being a podcast listener If you find a class that you love, either from the ones that I've curated or elsewhere on the site, and you want to buy it, during checkout, enter the code CHASER, that's my name plus an R, just C-H-A-S-E-R, and do that during checkout, and you'll get 25% off your order. Uh, I think that's awesome, and I hope you do too, so thanks very much for checking it out. Let me know what you think. Now, that's it for the sponsors. Uh, Now, let's get into the show. All right, Damon. Thanks a lot again, man. Thanks, thanks for, for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Happy to be here in New York, in your hometown. Born and raised. I am. I'm born and raised. Born and raised. Hollis, Queens. Hollis. Uh, the my 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 mission in sitting down with you today is to, as I said in the intro, is to unpack a lot of what you have in your brain and help uh, give the folks at home sort of actionable advice. Sure. I think the best way to do that. Clearly, everyone is familiar with you. You're on TV, a part of a hit show, Uh, but I'm actually most intrigued with your upbringing Mm-hmm. Specifically, starting Fubu, going from what I call zero to one, where you didn't, you you weren't entrepreneurial. You were thinking about it because yeah. that I think mostly identifies, or most of the people at, at home or watching identify with that. That's right. Uh, so, can you take us back to the early days before you were on Shark Tank, like when you were starting out? Because I think that'd be a good. Oh, well, when me I was starting idea. out.
1: What? When I was starting out in my business world, yeah, or I starting it, out Fubu in general.
0: Yeah, I think starting out business world again, go from zero to one, from yeah.
1: a non-entrepreneur, maybe a student. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, so so I was, a, I was a student, I was in high school, didn't know that I was, I, I didn't know I was dyslexic at the time. Uh, I found out only recently, 10 years ago, that I was dyslexic. But I needed to find a way to cheat and not go to school because I would accelerate in math and science, but I wouldn't accelerate in reading and things uh-huh. of that nature. So they came up with a program called Co-op, meaning that I can go to school one week and then I can get a job and work the other week, the alternative weeks. so i started working at lehman brothers who uh, really were owning uh, american express and and also i was a foot messenger at first boston and when i mean working there, i mean i was the guy in the in the elevator with the loud headphones on hitting on the girls with a little package in my hand (laughs) and i would go up there to all the offices and drop off my package and just leave so i started to realize something at that stage that there were a lot of people that I was working with within the messenger system that were either complaining about their lives or some people who were making the best out of their lives because they didn't want to take their job home with them. And when I worked in this, this is Manhattan, 53rd Street, and when I worked in First Boston as a messenger, we would be able to go upstairs and eat. And I would go upstairs and eat sometimes on the 50 something floor of this beautiful building and I would hear guys talking about how you know, they're having a hard time buying their eighth car, or they were just stressed. They were venture capitalists. They were just people who were stressed. miserable. Um, so I started to understand the value of money at that time. Got it. Um, you know, fast forward, I would go out and I would try to do small businesses. I would have a livery service, I would buy crash cars, and I had it all planned out. From 17 to 22, if I, if I purchased a crash car for 5,000 and put 2,000 into it and sold it for 10, if I did X amount of cars by X amount of time, I would be a millionaire by the time I was 22. That was the goal. That was the goal, very simple plan. And it was a flawless plan. But I think Mike Tyson has an old saying that's really amazing, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? <laughs> and <laughs> needless to say, at 22 I didn't have any money and I was working as a waiter in Red Lobster because uh, my plan didn't work out quite well, um, but you know, I had a lot of friends who were doing some things that I didn't necessarily agree upon, and I decided that I just wanted. I was inspired by this new product, this category that was coming around called hip hop, and everything that I would make, I would spend on anything hip hop. Wow! Tape, a record, boots, anything I saw in a video, whatever the case is. And an early we,
0: Grandmaster Flash video, Run DMC, what Run was DMC, that Run
1: DMC, oh, the first one that I purchased something, well Run DMC of course, my Adidas. I had sure. to have Adidas all Play the Am time. Shams. Yeah, exactly. And um, we started to hear these rumors that all these designers that we were buying the clothes from didn't like us. Plus, the clothes were expensive. I didn't need a $900 Gore-Tex ski jacket to wear around New York City. I just need a colorful jacket. So we started to make clothes and I remember uh, it was like yesterday. It was uh, 1989. I always tell the story. Good Friday. It was 37 degrees outside. It was three o'clock in the afternoon. I stood outside this place called the Coliseum Mall with a bunch of handmade hats that I made with my, you know, with my bare hands. And I sold $800 worth of hats. Not one day. $800 worth of knit hats. $800 worth of these little crappy hats. These hats were like a. Were they $800 a piece, and
0: you sold one, or? No,
1: no, no. No, they were $20 a piece, but I would give you love for 15. Um, and I sold $800 worth in one, in one day and I remember, you know, even like how I try to operate my business now, how I'm going full circle, I was one step away from the money. I made it myself and I sold it directly to the customer and I heard why they liked it or not. It wasn't giving a bunch of stuff away and hoping people like it. You live in New York City on the streets, you're selling stuff, people are telling you about what they think about the product and yourself and your mother whether you like it or not. Fair. So Fair enough. I remember, and, and that's really the start of a very long, long uh, and, and amazing journey.
0: But there's a lot of seeds that were planted in that story, I can yeah. tell. So let me go back and, and grab grab onto two things in particular. One, being dyslexic. Two, yeah. red lobster. Yeah. Because one of the things that I think is a very, very powerful thing for the folks at home to understand is when they are looking at you sitting on Shark Tank or any of the, the people that uh, I think motivate or inspire people in our culture today, there's a belief that you know, you've heard overnight success, you've heard born with a silver spoon, you've heard all these things. And I think if I have any personal mission as a part, in parallel with the stuff I'm doing around creativity, it's around sort of debunking this myth that everything comes to you on a silver platter. The people on TV were born to be on TV, et cetera. That
1: is exactly what, uh, you know, my third book, uh, thank God it's on the New York Times bestsellers list. You would never think that a dyslexic person will be on the New York Times bestsellers list. But by the way, four out of the six sharks are dyslexic by the way. Um, Now, um, to tell you the truth, it's the same thing. My book, The Power Broke, that was a concept. That the whole theory, you need money to make money, you need to know somebody, have a famous last name, Uh, all that crap, it doesn't work. I mean, I do have a famous last name, but when I called Elton John and told him that I was his son, there was a couple of reasons why he didn't believe it. How many times did you used that one? That's amazing. Now this is the second time I use it, but it's amazing. It's I, I, I tickle <laughs> myself when I say it. But if you look at all the things that I didn't have, I mean, people would say any of these were an issue. African-American, short, dyslexic, got left back, parents broke up, I uh, only raised by my mother by the age of 10, I can't sing, rap, dance. You know, none of that um, had worked for me. But I do point out often that if you look at the Forbes top or the Inc top 1,000 wealthiest people in the world, uh, over 60% of them were self-made men and women. That means they were broke. That means they did not have anything. So, yes, the theory of that we grew up watching Dynasty and uh, and Wall Street and all this crap about you need money to make money is yeah. absolute crap. I love it.
0: Yeah. So... Uh, You mentioned also not being aware that you're dyslexic until very late in life or later Um, You're still quite young obviously, but the the idea that there that Certainly there are people born into privilege. I think that is a I believe it There are people who were born into money, but your point is that that is not actually a requirement. So um, Overcoming dyslexia uh, Even when you didn't have a name for it. I'm sure Mm -hmm. it was very frustrating Uh, the red lobster bit humility Mm -hmm like willing to do anything to get a paycheck? Uh, Tell me about that part of your life for
1: a second. Yeah, you know, the Red Lobster bit came around in a very tough time. I was, um, I had already, I can't say failed because I learned a long lesson, a good lesson too. It took a long time. It was five years that I was operating my van company. In, In the, in Queens, in the boroughs, we'll pick up people for a dollar during the, on the bus stop, on the bus route. So we'd make $300 a day. But if you look at maintenance gas and you look at sometimes the Department of Transportation gives you a ticket, when you look at over the year, I've basically made, after all that, $20,000. All right? I cleared 20000 But after five years of doing that, I realized that if I went back to Red Lops because I started there as a waiter or something, I would make more money and I would not take my job home with me. And I decided to do that at another time when my friends, who I grew up with, they decided they turned to the wrong sides of the street. They were selling drugs. Yeah. And I didn't want to be associated with If you ever look at the Hype William movie, Belly, that was about all my friends. And I decided to go to Red Lobster and work. They would laugh at me because they were offering me jobs. And then on top of that, and a lot of people want to quit their day job because they have this dream or this this concept. On top of that, I started making hats at night. I would get up in the morning at 10 o'clock and go to work at Red Lobster at 12. I'd finish at 10. I'd sew hats till one. I'd package them till three. And then in the morning, I'd wake up from eight and deliver them up until 10. And I did that for two, three years, but I knew I had to keep the lights on, right? And on top of working there, my friends who were the tough guys, at that time, the perception of people who were um, in fashion were only gay guys. I have no issue with that. I mean, that's fine, but I wasn't gay. So I was actually treated like, Damon, what's wrong with you? You're working at Red Lobster, you're gay, you're this, you're that. that passion and that love for what I was doing like, I got a high to see somebody wear a product of mine and come back the next day and say, everybody loves it, can I buy another one? It, it was just something that was so special about it and I just absolutely fell in love with what I was doing. The, uh, a, I love the story
0: because there, there's, it's the recipe I feel like. There's this hustle, I, you know, I talk about the people's got nine to five and then there's the five to nine. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's sort of the dirtiest secret in entrepreneurship that I feel like you're giving away for free and I'm happy to talk about, you know, my transition. Sure. Having a job is actually responsible. Until so yes. like, people say, oh, you're an entrepreneur, or you're a, you're an artist or a freelancer, you go all in, right? Yeah. I'm like, only once, and then you realize that that's a dumbass thing to do. And what the people that I know who've been successful, and it sounds like this is true for you, you created some sort of steady income that would allow you to survive, not thrive, survive, so you can put every other ounce of energy, waking energy, into the thing that you
1: carry. Well, I mean, I want to even elaborate. At that time, you know, my mother moved out, I had a house, so what we did was, I worked and then five of my friends moved in and we all pitched in like rented a room basically at $50 or $75. We were the Airbnb of the gang, you know, at that time. And, you know, one of the top reasons why uh, small companies and startups fail is actually overfunding. Yeah. It's actually, they go out and they take a $100,000 loan and they never sold one thing in their life. But more importantly than the $100,000 loan, they also quit that thirty forty dollars 40000 job. They don't add that number into the money right. for the year. So they, they're they really in the red $150,000 and they before just they opened even, the door yeah, before, they even start. before they even realize what they have. Yeah. So that is uh, by far the truth. I mean, don't quit your day job, yeah. you know? And I, and I used to put um, goals and targets. After six months, I, if I put in six hours a week, how will this look? After a year, how will this look? And if you if you find that you can't even get to that point, then quit. You're not doing something that you love, you know? you're not. It's gonna feel like forever after one year if you aren't doing something you really, really are excited about. So you gold yourself, it sounds like
0: you said, after. Yeah. A, and I think, would you say that painting a picture of what success looks like or what the next step looked like is an important part of moving down that path?
1: Absolutely, you know, visualizing. And I learned this lesson by, um, you know, reading Think and Grow Rich when I was 16. Um, didn't really grasp it at the time, and my thinking "Grow Rich" concept when I was 16 was that Car. kid who thought he would be rich by 22, right? <laughs> didn't. But again, okay. being dyslexic, I had to read it again and again and again and over-concentrate on it. Then I started to read Brian Tracy's books on goal setting, Jay Abraham's books on goal setting, and I started to see the same thing come through that you have to visualize this goal because we also visualize the negative goals that we're going to be stuck in this rut, or I think Oprah said it best, you become what you think about most of the time. And it's funny, and I know we'll get to this, but when I was in the transition of moving from uh, being a manufacturer, a producer, to somewhere in entertainment, I never wanted to have a reality show. They offered me shows to come to my company, see my family. I said, absolutely not. But I always wanted to be a broadcaster like a, a Walter Cronkite, or actually what you're doing now. There you go, right? I always wanted to be that kind of guy. Because I didn't figure that if you walk down the street, people would go, oh my god, Walter Cronkite. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So I kept visualizing myself as a newscaster. And I remember, if you ever look at the first Shark Tank, we're sitting on this big, high news desk. It's really wow. tall, and it looks like a news desk. And I, I had visualized that, and it sound, I, I know it sounds crazy. I'm not about lava lamps and all that type of stuff but I visualized it and things like that. But it does come true, it really does, you know? You said
0: lava lamps, That's I get it. Like, clearly what you think about becomes your reality. Yeah. I have personally many ex- experiences that are the same. I visualized how many goals I was gonna score. I went to college on a soccer scholarship my senior year. I knew I had to have a great year. I literally scored the exact amount of goals I've been thinking about for a year. Not one more, not one less. Yeah. Very random number. I wished I would've picked a higher number. Uh, but. I think the same is true, so is there, do you have a particular, this is a little bit personal maybe, but do you have a particular style of visualization, do you meditate, do you think around like that? Yeah,
1: so I, I have goals, They I have ten goals that I read uh, every single morning, every single evening, five days a week, um, uh, seven of them are their, uh, their goals that expire within six months, and two of them expire in five years and one expire in 20 years. The seven that expire within six months uh, range from health, family, um, to business, things of that nature. Uh, as I read through them, I read um, what I want to accomplish, how will I get there, and what will I do to pay for, the, for getting them done. They expire in six months, all at the same date. I have this, um, uh, I have this anxiety in me right around when they're about to come, and usually I can accomplish maybe two of them. The other ones, I'm 30%, 40% there, whatever. I reset them for another six months. But
0: you don't feel like, what would that be, 30% 30 success is actually failing on 70% of it? it's
1: great. It's great to to get there. Give give
0: me a little psychology there. Well,
1: the theory is is this. So the theory is if I'm 30% there, that means I only have 70% more to go instead of, not getting out the gate and going one day i'm going to be like this because if i'm reading a goal argument's sake it's saying that you know within with by by july 10th i'm going to lose 25 pounds by uh eating fruit in the morning substituting one meal with a green drink working out twice one is cardio one is uh weight lifting not eating after seven o'clock and and whatever the case is, and in regards for that, I'm going to be healthier and I'm going to stay in my family and my daughter's lives more to be there to protect them, whatever the case is. You're going to wake up in the morning, you're going to eat a banana purse. When I don't, eat my goal, when I don't read my goals, I'm eating steak, egg, and cheese with a crusty <laughs> piece of bread. My girlfriend's gluten-free. I pay extra for gluten. and <laughs> There's uh, a
0: tax on that gluten, too. Not just I know. The I, I'm happy the to guilt, pay that. The I'm guilt a, tax? No, pay it. Pay it. (laughs) So, uh, visualizing success is clearly a part of how you've got to be where you are. Uh, The nine to five hustle, I think you basically described around the clock. Yes. Um, There's a, uh, as I said earlier, I think this is like one of the dirtiest secrets that shit just doesn't happen. Yeah. People, actually people, and it's not events make things happen. People make things happen. you talked early on about being around people who are a bad influence. If we are the average of the five people that we spend the most time with, how important is picking your friends?
1: It's one of the top reasons, I mean, so your friends, you know, when FUBU, when we were at our toughest time, you know, I tell the story about 89, but I closed FUBU three down, three times from 89 to 92, running out of capital. Now, remember though, it was affordable mistakes, so I'd run out of $1,000, $4,000, $3,000. I could survive yeah. from it. Sure. Um, people started coming back. I want some more, I want some more. And then I surrounded myself with f- well, four other partners. One of those partners would never stick around. It was the fifth beetle. We went through like six of those.
0: <laughs> the drummer <laughs> from the Spinal Tap. <cord.
1: laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. But the other three would never let me quit when I wanted to quit and vice versa. They would find the reason, and you wouldn't be just on this island alone. And I find that like-minded people are the reason, and again, as I share in my Power of book, you know, people, if, we, if I had taken out a $100,000 loan, they would have stayed as long as I was paying them. Not because they were blood sucking, but they were like, I have a job to do. Yeah. But you get to, see, you get to see people's true colors, the ones who are problem solvers, the ones who jump ship, the ones who are willing to pull the weight, the ones who are excited. When, when you see that you're around people and they wanna be part of a movement for no other reason but excited about the movement, it keeps you excited and and I think that being around like-minded people and mentors are the number one reason for success other it's than powerful. the other ones yeah it's powerful
0: it's powerful you, you've mentioned your book a couple times I have a lot of questions about it yeah I uh, wanted to get some of that early life out of the way before we go to the book though, just give me that little yeah. chapter between um, hustling and with with $20 hats that maybe someone could get you for 15 yeah and having the FUBU that we know today? Because uh, you've, you talked about closing the doors four times. It's a, it's, it's a, was it a scary road? or Was it a hairy road? Like what's, you it's, know, a, it's a huge brand now, it's a global brand. Yeah. So, you know, the, the
1: closing it three or four times up until 1992 was, uh, hey, nobody did this before. Maybe we don't know any better, all right? This is my fifth failure at something. Um, then 97, we become popular by that time. 97 to 2001, wildly successful. More money than many people can dream of. I burned uh, 30 million dollars on television, this and that. And at that time, it's it's kind of the, all right, Damien, you know the reality of this world. Uh, A hot clothing brand lasts five to seven years. We're not talking about Nike or Ralph Lauren or Louis Vuitton. We're talking about the 10,000 other ones that went out of business. In all reality, everybody's going to say that you got, you, you got struck by lightning and one bite of the apple. How are you going to do this again? Um, as well as how are you going to maintain this madness? Do you keep building this brand that you know you may spend into the curve and it's going to go dead anyway? Or do you go out and acquire new brands? So then we start acquiring other brands. Failure. Bringing um, um, Ted Baker to the United States to do retail. They want to do retail, we didn't. Failed, brought Kappa to United States because you were a soccer player, right? That's right. But Ka- Kappa to the United States found out that people just like to go to little shops and buy their one Germany shirt <laughs> for whatever reason. You guys are stingy. Um, didn't work because they didn't get to launch soccer in the United States the way it was supposed to be. Uh three other brands. Uh Willy Esco was good, Drunken Monkey was okay, but the partner in Drunken Monkey, he had another brand, and we didn't want to partner in that one because we liked the Drunken Monkey brand. The other brand was Hudson. He goes off and does three, four hundred million dollars. Fail, 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 fail. All of a sudden we find a brand called Kuji, a brand that Biggie Smalls used to wear, an Australian brand, really loud sweaters, do really well with that. So now we're back on top. I go and acquire another brand called Heatherette, two really amazing flamboyant designers that remind me of Fubu, before the pop culture, ladies, blow six million dollars on that and realize Oof. Realized that remember I said overfunding because I said, Oh, let's buy the hot the most expensive design, the most expensive ads, the most expensive this and realized I didn't roll up my sleeve and put it back in, but during that time it became very dark from Fubu to where we found Kuji and then it started Then I started settling my my age started settling, also I wasn't no longer twenty eight years old, and um uh you know at that point, then I decided i'm I'm successful enough in regards to I don't have to work again. How can I start paying this forward? And how can I start talking to people about entrepreneurship? Because I felt that that this wasn't really talked about around 2001, 2002, uh, 2004. All my again glamorous friends were like, "Fubu's over. We don't need to talk to this guy. He's out there talking about books. He's like a professor or something <laughs> like that about business. Let's not talk to him anymore." I start going to little shows, which are amazing, like CNBC, MSNBC, Donny Deutsch. Mark Burnett finds me doing those shows. So it always goes back to when I started to do something and I was extremely passionate about the biggest opportunities in my life presented themselves.
0: There's obviously a huge thing. That's a huge takeaway. So you talked about the thri- boom, bust, boom, bust, boom, bust. Over what period of time was that? You said four or five years? Basically?
1: That was from, that was from, from the, okay. the boom, to the bus 2000 to say 2004 and five. Got it. So at that point when,
0: well, first of all, let's go back to the initial hockey stick of FUBU. How'd you do that? What was the difference between lack of success and success?
1: I think that that was uh, not sleeping, finding out. We knew what we kind of like social media today. When you see individuals who really DJ Khaled, you see somebody who finds a new platform, but he has just a, a, a message that everybody wants to hear one way or another, (laughs) good, bad, or (laughs) ugly, right? And it's all those people who get onto the platform first, the Ashton Kutcher's and the ditties of the world with Twitter. And when music videos are really starting to evolve, and we were able, because we actually, I've been on tour since I was a kid. I live in Hollis, Queens, where Russell Simmons is from, Run DMC, Salt and Pepper, LL Cool J. So I've been on tour since I was 14 years old on music tours, having a good time. But we realized that we can dress these artists that we know and they can go on these videos, and this video were, it's, it's Instagram.
0: yeah, it's the And it didn't cost world. us
1: anything. And when we realized that, then we needed to find a, 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 somebody who did back of the house distribution and everything like that. My mother ad, told me to take an ad in the newspaper. I took an ad in the newspaper. It said, million dollars in orders need financing. I did have about $300,000 in orders, so it was, a, it was a real deal. And 33 people called. 30 of them were drug dealers and or uh, pimps and loan sharks. But one was Samsung, Samsung's textile division. And Samsung's textile division-
0: Samsung's textile division- Samsung's textile division. showering for business in the New York Times? They're
1: showering (laughs) for business. They have, listen, they're doing $200 billion. They do everything from nuclear reactors to cars, and they don't care what it is, if they feel that it works in one of their divisions, I have you the know, pleasure of having shot Samsung campaigns. I know <laughs> exactly. what it's like to work with those guys. So we, uh, we did a deal with them and they saw that we had validity in the market. The deal was that I had to sell uh, $5 million worth of clothes in three years. That was the deal. Straight up, just, that was $5 million, they Samsung, they're like, we're big manufacturers. We can't make small amount of goods. We have to make all these raw goods. Da, da, da. But because I'd already had this swell, this proof of concept, this, this, this Khaled today, I already knew, like the way he has whatever, two million views on his Snap, I knew that I had 10, 20 videos lined up and I only had like 10 or 20 t-shirts to put in the videos. But as this all culminated, we did the deal and we did a $30 million worth of clothes in, in three months. And then food would just kept going. It just, it just 30, 30 million three months. But you think about it, it was a six year swell of us placing, placing, placing yeah. goods and thank God the internet wasn't out. Because if we were just placing goods all those times and the internet was out, the kids would say, I can't get it, this is crap, let's go somewhere. But they were going, maybe I don't live in the city where it's at, maybe I can't get to that store. And I'm gonna go all over the city trying to get it. I'm gonna try to find it, oh, I don't know where it's at. But when it finally, when it finally got there, bang. And that's what happened. Couldn't, I couldn't do that today. Wow, Yeah.
0: 30 million in three months?
1: 30 million, three months. And then the second year, we would do about $400 million. And it was amazing.
0: <laughs> Damn. All right. Uh, okay, that's crazy. There's plenty of lessons baked in there. Uh, let's highlight a couple of them. One, clearly you have to put in the time. As you yep. just said yourself, it wasn't really that moment where I was told that I could go sell $5 million worth of clothes. It was the six years Prior. that people don't see. Uh, um, ben Haggerty is a friend of mine, Macklemore. People thought he was an overnight success. Mm-hmm. The dude had been making music for 10 years. He was yeah. living in his parents' basement sure. when I first really got into his music. And there, I think it's fair to say that there are overnight successes that are really, they're flash in the pan. That's a one-hit song that doesn't stick around. But anything that has any sort of lasting power, I don't know of any examples, and uh, maybe you do, but don't talk me out of it. It sounds good what I'm saying, but <laughs> I can't think of it. It's 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 literally about putting in the time, and it's it's there's you have to have greatness yep. for sure, but uh, you have to put in the time.
1: You have to put in the time. Number one, which is always going to be the biggest challenge in life is time. Even today, I face time. You know, because as much as I want to share, that how much time you have to put in. Um, I got divorced. You know, because of putting in too much time and or. Um, your health can decline after putting too much time, so how do you find that balance? Uh, that's the biggest challenge. And, but how? when are you also realistic with yourself about you're not hitting the goals or you're not doing something right? I mean, I get mad at people on Shark Tank very rarely. But the times that I get mad at people on Shark Tank, it's when a person's walking up, They have $100,000 raised from family and friends, so grandma bust open her 401K. Their their kids college fund is up at risk. They're not looking at the data, realizing that it's not working this way. All their families behind them because they want to be part of a movement and they just will not take no for a vanity reason or some other reason. And those are the people that I hate um, because they're not being realistic. With what they're doing with everybody else's money, and those are the people I kind of—I I yell at those people, and I yell at the other ones who are on that platform, just to get, just to make a, a get advertising free when they're taking, they're taking time away from a single mom who just busted her butt for ten years to have that shot. Those are only two people I get mad at, but but bottom line is, when are you realistic with? It's not working. Fair enough. Before we go on to Shark Tank, because I think there's a lot uh, for us to learn
0: there, because we all know TV is. It's like making the sausage, like if you can see what's on the other side of the cameras yeah. right now, it's not pretty. There's cords everywhere. It's not a pretty process. Uh, but what you do is certainly have any impact. Uh, I think it underscores the entrepreneurial spirit, which is something that I'm proud of. I love watching you do that. I know Cuban as well. I think it's something that he, he enjoys, that fire and, and helping people live their, their dreams. Uh, but let's talk about the book. Oh, sure. So you've got three books. Um, the third one now is The Power of Broke. Broke. Yeah. And New York Times bestseller, congratulations! Thank you. And concept, why? What's different about the other books, and and why did why did this one go to the list?
1: Sure. So, um, Display of Power was my first one. It was basically you know my story, and you know. And then what I think about branding and things of that nature and people need to hear my story and my views to then think if they agree. The next one was the brand within where people don't realize that we invest in people before anything else and you're a brand from the day you're born. Um, And this one, the power broke, it's because of all the years on Shark Tank hearing people with the... I need money to make money and all that type of stuff. And then seeing the other side of people who are doing way, doing business a totally new way today. They don't have any, they haven't had anything. And like the Shopify people yeah, we know, lovely. bang, $2 million in business the first year because they mixed everything. They've have mentors, like-minded people. They've done their analytics. They have uh, tried really small and made affordable mistakes. And uh, they know their customer and they respect and value the customer. And what I did was not just put my story in there, because I do not want people to think, oh, well, you know, again, you got got lucky. I put in there 15 other well-known people from around the world like Kevin Plank, the CEO of Under Armour, Doing four or five billion dollars a year, didn't have enough money to pay a toll, had to get a ticket when he had went over the bridge when he was when he had Under Armour up and going. All right. Or uh, you know, Mark Burnett, producer of my show, who was in the British Special Forces, came over here and got a job as a nanny, you know, for a while and then he was selling t-shirts on Venice Beach or or uh, many of these people. A lot people Rob uh, Durdak, sure, exactly. Yeah, um, talking about how he couldn't get into his first skateboarding gig, so they said, he said, hey, if I go and get four people to, to sign up, will you let me, you know, skateboard? They're like, yeah, sure, whatever, and he's like, alright, here's your five people. So, um, I put everybody in there and I tried to, uh, basically show people, uh, you know, what they really need, the secret sauce they need, and that, don't just take it from me. Um, I can't guarantee that somebody's gonna have, uh, the best winning idea ever, but I want you to either fail fast or learn your mistakes small. And that's what the book's all about. Uh, are there any sort of uh,
0: pivotal moments or milestones in each of those fifteen stories that I haven't we haven't talked about here? Is there anything like you said, special sauce? But what's... well, you know,
1: I have my power facts in there, yeah. and I have small takeaways that you can kind of mark, and you can see, and you can see in everybody's story where they're aligned together. Um, and of course, I don't want to just give away everything, <laughs> but I also don't want to take up too much time to talking about because no, I think good. that. Uh, the product is good and more importantly what what I think may or may not mean anything because honestly when I came up with the name Power Broke I thought people were gonna say I don't want to hear when you were broke or I don't even want to hear when I'm broke or not gonna relate to it but people have been really relating to it and when I go out to my book signings and there's hundreds of people out there half of them are paying attention to me but you know what more importantly they're doing? they're talking to each other because it's like a big networking thing so just like Shark Tank, well, we're a very small part of it. I'm hopefully a small part of this theory to dispel this crap that everybody has been thinking. You know? Yeah.
0: The uh, I think let's, let's, there's a promise in both the Power of Broke, and it's the same promise that lies within Shark Tank, which is the pa- the, the power of possibility. Yeah. Uh, the power of community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the well, why don't you tell me what you think about? community now with the internet? Does it make it harder for business, easier for business, harder for community, easier for community? Is it easier for ideas to be stolen? How protective about ideas? Like, talk to me about modern times relative yeah. to you. You've also talked about, well, if I would've done it back then, but let's yeah. talk about right now. What are the, What's the upside for now?
1: I, you know, the upside for now is the information's out there. The upside for now was the analytics are there. You know, um, you know, if I sold somebody a product, uh, you know, 10 years, 10 year, 15 years ago, How am I gonna find you again to sell you another shirt? I gotta come knock on your door, right? Or maybe you'll go to a festival I'm at. Now, I know who you are. I know, you know, why you bought the shirt, why you didn't buy the shirt, I might know, right? I can look through your history on social media and see other things you've purchased and see how many of my customers purchase other things like that. Even once I got to the level of selling to big department stores, I never knew if they took the stuff out the back, did they put it with a competitor, they throw it in a bucket, did the mom buy it, did the kid buy it, did the kid buy it for himself, the mom buy it for the kid, why didn't they buy it? Um, So today the analytics are there. Number one, that's very, very important. So you can get to your customer easier. But the bigger problem is everybody can do the same thing. So now the fundamentals of business still has to be there. You still have to wake up at 5.59 a.m. Because everybody else is waking up at 6 and you still got to go to bed at 12.01, right? And you still have to figure it out and you still have to make affordable mistakes and you still have to be that proprietor. You know, the proprietor, you walk in the store and you say, Hey, how you doing, man? How's the family? That's what you're doing on social media too. Um, So I think the fundamentals are there. It's a bigger platform. I've seen massive wealth created off that platform, but you know, you you just got to figure it out. But it's, it's easier today.
0: It is easier today. I love the fact that there's no gatekeepers. Yep. You talked about like how do you actually find money? Uh, that's, there is a still a relative sort of gatekeepers, but we've got crowdfunding. Uh, we, you know, From the artist, the creatives perspective, you used to have to get permission from the photo editor to get your stuff in the magazine, from the galleries to get it on the wall. Mm. and now, to press of a button, we can reach as many people are interested in paying attention. Do you believe it's a meritocracy? Yeah, Yeah, I do. Uh, he said, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. So, uh, let's get a little more personal for a second here. We talked about the book, we still have, uh, I still want to talk about a little bit about Shark Tank, sure. but is there some things about you that people would be surprised to know that they don't know right now?
1: You know, I think that I love to laugh. I have a, a, what, I, what I feel is a funny sense of humor. I, I laugh with my friends. Um, you know, on the show, you know, I said to them, how come I never smile on the show after the edits? They go, you're not supposed to smile. I said, yeah, why? Sure. They said, no, this is business theater. Robert smiles. Barbara smiles. Cuban is the cowboy. You're the snake in the grass quiet guy. O'Leary is the devil. This is just what it is. You don't smile. So I think that you know, to know that I have some level of a sense of you humor. Know, people follow me on social media, they know. Um, and I'm not this, uh, you know, glossy guy. I'm a very down-to-earth guy. I love nature. I love, uh, you know, snowboarding, uh, you know, fishing. Those are the things I love. But people would think, because I'm an inner-city guy, that, you know, I just like to hang out in clubs and fancy restaurants and fancy cars. And that's really not my, clubs, yes. Restaurants, yes. Fancy cars, are... I, when I spent that $30 million, yep. I spent them on all that other type of stuff. I don't, I don't need any of that anymore. Cars and TVs. Yeah.
0: Talked about Russell Simmons. Has he been influential you? Incredible guy.
1: Russell Simmons? Yeah. Um, I can't, I'm trying to think of anybody else who hasn't, who has been more influential than Russell Simmons besides, you know, um, and even Muhammad Ali, I didn't know him at the time. So Russell Simmons, you know, really was the star in my neighborhood who showed us that you didn't need to do the bad things. You didn't need, you didn't need to work at a factory and you also didn't need to uh, sell drugs. And as Russell created Def Jam, um, then Run DMC, Salt and Pepper, all those guys, they all needed a roadie, a bodyguard, or a, a, a friend, this and that. So it started to ripple throughout the neighborhood, and he really created the art of our neighborhood. It's, can you talk about that part? You said you were connected to that scene. Yeah.
0: In what ways? Like, again, I love people that knowing that you worked at Red Lobster. and like, what, what ways were you connected to that so, music scene in your, in your neighborhood?
1: So it's funny. So um, when Run D.M.C. came out, you know we knew the guy Larry, and there's a song when Run D.M.C. goes, "Larry Love put me inside the Cadillac. The chauffeur drove off and I never came back." So we knew them, and they would start going on tours, up and down the Eastern Seaboard, and we were we with all our friends of mine, we would just want to go on tours, So. They would we we'd find a way to get down to Philadelphia to the Spectrum Theater, and then we'd go knock at the back door, and we'd see the bodyguards of all the friends we knew in the neighborhood. They would give us these passes, and we'd run around throughout the thing, and um, we would just have a good time. And I also also was a break dancer at that time, and I was trying to go on tour. Still got a windmill, huh? I still
0: got a windmill. Oh no, no, I was a popper.
1: I couldn't do that. I couldn't hurt myself. (laughs) I still got it. I was I was trying to go on tour with Houdini. and I actually got picked to go on a tour with Houdini. My mother said, "Are you crazy? You're 14 or whatever years old. You're not going on your tour." And you know who replaced Bad me? me on the, yeah. You know one. who replaced me on that tour? Who's that? That Jermaine Dupri. He replaced no. me as the dancer on that tour. Right. So that's my that's my 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 that's uh, your almost. <laughs> huh? That's my almost moment, right? Um, but no way. Yeah. So you know, so we grew up. I remember the, There was a, I remember running and they had a bus that came to Hollis, and every it was in a big Adidas bus. And we all got to go on there and go to the garden. Um, and you've, you've seen the N.W.A. movie? Of course. So okay. when we were on that tour, and the tour we met we, in Detroit. Now, remember rap over here in, on, on this side was Eric B. Rakim Houdini. Very, it was oh, kind of nice. Monster. But N.W.A., and we, we didn't know anything about California. I remember going on a tour to Detroit, and I remember seeing cops throwing the bottles at, at, the, at them, and them throwing the bottles at the cops. I didn't know what had happened about this whole, if you get on stage, you do all this. And we said at that time, we were like, oh, these people from L.A., they just have jerry curls. They wear some funny looking pants. They're nobodies. We left that tour and said, I'm never going back <laughs> to anywhere we ended with because they were scary. So I remember I was about 16 or 17. So anyway, yeah, um, and that's my life It, it was a very fun time. And then also the tour made its way down to Florida and we ran into Uncle Luke. And that's when I realized that we need to be in Florida instead of California. Anyway, But yes, that's my music history and we've been with them. And I grew up with, um, there was three friends of mine, uh, and all of us when we were about 12, 13, and this music was come around, one of us said, Hey, I we're going to, I'm going to be the, the best in fashion. Another one said, I'm going to be the best in uh, playing music. The other one said, I'm going to be the best in hopefully videos. And another one said, I'm going to be the best drug dealer. And, um, I was, I created FUBU, Hype Williams created, uh, you know, doing the videos, Irv Gotti created uh, Murder, Inc., and Hype did a movie about my friend who's in jail still from selling the best, he's the best drug dealer in the neighborhood, so we came up all together at 12 years old. We all set those goals. Speaking of film, you went to film school. I did.
0: Nobody knows that. I love that. Nobody knows that. I went to film that. school. Have you ever told
1: anybody that? I, I don't think I have. I went to you film got school. A, you
0: got a first right here.
1: Yeah. I went to film school, but I only went a short time. I went there for about six months. I wanted to take up uh, directing because I was on so many sets and I wanted to understand the camera angles and the settings. Yeah. I'll know? just confess. I'm going to interrupt you for a second. He comes in.
0: He's looking at all the cameras. <laughs> and like, like, was it Dan? Is that right? Ted. Ted. I knew it was three letters. Ted. <laughs> Why they got all these cameras? Why can't we have? No, I was. Yeah, yeah,
1: No, I'm fascinated by it. Um, I'm sure you see it a lot. And sure. then I did two. Um, I filmed three videos. I did uh, Gucci man's Freaky Girl. I directed that video. Um, I directed uh, Fat Joe's Clap and Revolve. And don't worry about it, I'm a horrible director. You have nothing to worry about. <laughs> All I cared about was how good the DP was and I sat in the back That's eating right. a cheeseburger or something and just, you know. Sat in that
0: chair. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Cut! <laughs> I love that. Position one, back to position one. All right, so one
0: of my personal missions just straight up is trying to get the world to be a more creative place. Uh, I believe that creativity is the new literacy and if we put as a culture one-tenth the amount of energy that we put into trying to make our culture literate, like in the classic sense of literate, into creativity, that the world would be a more magic place. And This is creativity, not just photography design, but creativity with a capital C, like innovation. Got um, it. Uh, even theoretical science has creativity at its core, right? We have mm-hmm. the, it's the fundamental solution to every problem has creativity in it. Talk to me about the role of creativity
1: in getting you where you are right now. Um, well, it would, we didn't have anything else to rely on. We didn't have any other resources, so it was purely thinking out of the box and how could we be different. Um, you know, I love the story of when we, we didn't have any money to advertise, uh, but you know, if you look in you know, a lot of the urban communities, they have these big, gray, nasty gates They roll down at the end of the night. Um, so we went over to all these people with these stores and we said, you know, can we put on there, you know, we spray paint something with FUBU on there. So we would spray paint the, we would spray paint the gates bright, bright white, and then put either FUBU authorized dealer if it was a store or just FUBU, you know, making moves or whatever it is. And at, we, 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 each gate would cost us $30 in spray paint, $100 in spray paint. But by the time we were done, we had a 300 gates around. From here to philadelphia and nice. it was just my friends we would go and take a big we'd wipe it out and then take a stencil and spray paint the food um somebody did a report in the new york times and i think i think they said if you look at how many the gates are down in the morning during rush hour six to nine and the gates especially in the winter are down about six o'clock to nine o'clock at night if you look at how many buses and trains and people ride by in the urban cities by these gates uh, they said we probably uh, had about three million dollars worth of advertising through those gates. Now we didn't think of it like that. We did think of it as an advertising play, but we had to be creative. So we had to be creative with the art. Yeah. Had to be creative with how we were going to talk to the person and put it up there, and creative on how we were going to uh, strategically place it. Um, you know. So I do believe in creativity, um, and I have 20 stories like that. Um, but yeah, I mean that's the difference. You know, it's, we're not just Pushing widgets here, you know. It's about being creative.
0: I, I, you said something that I really gravitate towards, which is we wanted to be different. Yeah. And I say aim for different, not just better. And yeah. when you're aiming for different, and you feel traction, the better part comes because you'll sure. be able to differentiate yourself through, you know, repetition. You start, you know, you start down here, and if you do something enough, you're gonna get your 10,000 hours or whatever. But but being different is how you get noticed. And no one else was painting no. gates. Nobody else from was. here to Philly. Um, Anything else around different that you'd throw in there? Like, is that something you look for when you're investing in Shark Tank? Is that something you look for in your personal investments? Different. How important is
1: different? Or are you just trying to like outmaneuver people? Uh, you know, I think no. Something always has to be different. It always, but it can't be too different. If it's too different, a lot of people won't get it. Yeah. So it has to be a couple of steps. Different, ahead. not weird. Yeah. Right. Well, sometimes you could just be a little too early and, you know, by the time people catch up, you know, you may not even have the credit for what's happening. You know, we went through that. With, of course, with fashion, you always have to be one step ahead. Um, I always say that a, a lot of people in business, they go out there and they become another me-too product. They say, well, so forth is doing it. We should do this. Or if you, I, I grew up in the game of fashion. When a buyer who buys for retail, most of the buyers are designers that never could get a job, to be very honest. So when they walk into your room, all your buyers out there, (laughs) most of them, (laughs) right? So when they walk into the room, they're going to give you the lowest common denominator. They have, they have went to 10 other showrooms. They went to Nike, uh, you know, uh, Hilfiger, Ralph Lauren, and they're going to come in there and say, polos are hot next year. They're coming out next year. But if you already are looking at a polo, that would design the year prior. So if I try to design this polo, I'm going to come out the year after. And you have to feel good with your gut. People don't trust their gut as much as Mm. they should. See, man, I'm huge on that one. Absolutely. You have to feel good with your gut, and you have to feel and have the confidence that you're taking that right step forward. If you're taking a wrong step forward and everything's betting on that, then you don't have any skill anyway, because you're going to need to do that every other day. Yeah, Yeah, yeah.
0: So technology, what role is technology playing for you? I know there's a lot of, again, the creatives out there that there are people who... Um, abhor that or they are trying to be somehow pure with their art and the internet is this or that and for me it's been about sort of embracing anything and give you leverage but how do you think think about it? Technology's
1: been amazing. I've been able to talk directly to my uh, fans, directly to the people. I've been able to honestly look in there and see what people don't like. You know when I hashtag FUBU, not the people who are following FUBU, I realize what they're saying. Um, and about four years ago when we were trying to decide where we were going to go with the brand when I hashtagged it, the, the con- what, I, what I saw in there was most people thought we sold it people thought we were only baggy jeans um, and I forgot the other thing and, and the styles they saw they didn't like and but I instead of having to say buy food, buy food, I had to say number one it's still us, we own it number two is we've been making form-fitting clothes in Europe for the last 20 years it was just the American hip-hop kids that wanted that. And number three, the ugly styles you see, that's stuff from 10 years ago or counterfeit. You can show me what you're wearing in Gucci 10 years ago. If it's low it's going to look nasty. Look so, you know, we have, you know, so that let yeah. me address the issue. Yeah. you got to take the taint off of things before you even try to tell them how good the new thing is. Um, I think also the analytics have been very, very good, and I've also been able to, in a small way, let my fans and and the supporters be part of the new process. So, like when talking about the book, I had five covers; they picked the cover they liked the most. They contributed to a lot of the things they liked the most. Um, so, it's really, really uh, amazing. It's super time consuming. I mean, it for just sure. sucks your blood. Yeah, it does. It's but it's a necessity. For sure. Let's talk about for one second. You talked a little bit
0: in there. Buried was about attention. About uh, we talked about DJ Khaled. So I'm going to go to Snapchat. Yeah. Uh, I've, uh, I've millions of followers across a handful of different um, platforms. I have. I'm smitten with Snapchat and in the same way I was smitten with Twitter when it first came out. I mean, Khaled is, you know, that's he's a of nature man. That's crazy <laughs> what he's doing. But it's very powerful. Every. Yeah five second video bless up and all that is being seen millions of times yeah do you care about it do you are you paying attention to it I'm just curious about this particular thing you're paying attention
1: again something just you gotta put a lot of time into oh, you gotta remember yeah. you're like so that I put on my Facebook LinkedIn my no, Twitter I'm, my Instagram I'm my CyberDust, whatever the right case now. is right yeah and I nice CyberDust throw in right I there gotta do that because right. that's my man's that's in right them right. but um but yeah I mean snap I love it um but and I try to offer people on my snap some things that humor part that they never see and sometimes they go man were you drunk no <laughs> that's just me you know but um, it's a it, very powerful tool I don't know it well enough but that doesn't matter I'm not getting into the back end of it yet I'm yeah. trying to just be myself on it see how far it goes and I do like I love it I mean it's it's so easy to create a
0: simple like it, it the lack of editing the ability to be yourself on a one-on-one ba- the, the one-on-one basis yeah. is
1: very it's it's a And great people way to know clean. that you just put it up fresh. It yeah. was
0: it's just so raw for you yeah. or for this small group of people that you're interested in sharing. Uh, yeah, I am smitten, I'm not going to lie. I got to thank my man Gary Vee for pushing really God, like yeah. yeah, he's not afraid
1: I, to you bash. Know, over you, the know you know why you know you know you know why I think why I was first uh, turned off from it? Cuz you thought it was for 14-year-olds. Well, it was right, but it was my nephew who every time I was saying, "Come on, will you hurry up?" He'd always snap him on the toilet, going, "After this one last one, like or something no. like that." And after that, I was like, man. "I can't." He just kept
0: sending that to me. Thanks a lot, man. This is a great visual. Yeah, so uh, That's
1: why I didn't, I didn't, I didn't hop on it for quite, quite I get it. Time. I get it. I'm not gonna judge. Um,
0: <laughs> what's next? Where are you going? What are you doing?
1: Uh, you know, I am. Um, so um, I've been. Hey, let me interrupt. Uh,
0: your job at Shark Tank yeah. is to see around the corner. Yes. Invest in, you're investing in products, but you're also investing in people. Yeah. You're also investing in the right thing at the right time. Because the right thing at the wrong time is still wrong. Correct. So, baked into my question about what's next, is you're, you, you spend a lot of your day or certain number of days a year filming.
1: Now, has that given you special insight into see around the corner? Great, great question. Um, so, my life—about eight months of it—is consumed with Shark Tank. You know, a month filming, maybe a month av- uh, marketing, advertising, promoting, and then really running the companies takes another whatever it is, uh, six, seven months. Uh, and not running the companies—excuse me—investing in the companies and working sure. with entrepreneurs. So number one, my next couple of years, I have been I have the honor of investing in these people's dreams and they're letting me ride along with them. So I have, a, I have an obligation to them. How many investments are you in? I'm not sure, probably 40 something. Uh, could be higher than that, but again, I don't have to pay attention to every one of them. Some of them have really great CEOs. Some of them are not doing that well. You don't need to pay any attention to them at the moment. Um, so that's that. Number two is, it has brought me a vast amount of knowledge i have so many colleagues that are still in the old let's make these shirts hopefully a store will sell them hopefully somebody will buy them when they walk by the store and we'll take how many don't sell back and i think that if i wasn't on the show and i didn't have the access to the shopify's of the world and i don't i didn't see all these amazing entrepreneurs doing business in a whole new way that i would have been one of the dinosaurs because i'm seeing that as the biggest divide the ones who are, ma- who are influencing people are 14 to 30, the ones who make the goods generally are 40 to 70, and there's few that cross in between. And the few that cross in between, they have no problems. They're learning, they're learning to really take themselves into the next place where they're going. So those are the things. Um, as the Obama administration finishes, I just came back. I was in Cuba with Obama yesterday, and I'm, uh, I'm an ambassador for global entrepreneurship with uh, President Obama, appointed by President Obama in the White House, myself, Steve Case, uh, Julie Han, uh, um, Brian Chesney, Airbnb, yep. and uh, Tory Burch, and a couple of us. So my job there for the next, um, you know, eight months or six months, whatever it is, is to make sure that I spread entrepreneurship with this administration, with uh, Secretary Penny Pritzker and President Obama to the world. So hopefully we don't have as many people who, don't have hope in the world and end up doing things that are not in the best interest of mankind. Because as we're saying, it's so easy to do business now. If you're somebody living in a certain country and you can't feed your family, and then somebody else over here offers you ways to feed your family, you're going to go there. But if you can open up a cell phone and you can open up a Shopify account and make $20 a week and feed your family, you may not go and do the things that are not in the best interests of all of us. So that's another uh, job that I have that I take very serious and long after this administration is over I'm sure I'll be doing the same thing with them. And um, you know my newest and biggest product is I love the concept of this WeWork um, and uh, co-work sharing space. I think they're doing a great job and I think that uh, it's a great product and you know, whether I collaborate with them or other people, I'm gonna probably start opening up a couple of things where I think whether it's my Shark Tank companies, whether it's my private companies, whether I allow it to be other people's companies to come in because I will get to learn even more in that space. It's a
0: powerful space when you put yourself, it, that go back to the earlier statement about you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. Being, it's one of the things I love about spending a lot of time in San Francisco, created a life, started in Seattle, we blew yeah. up, moved down to San Francisco, took on Greylock and social capitals, investors, Wow, yeah. like that's some eye opening shit when you get to run around with the the again the folks you talked about, Travis and Ryan from mm-hmm. Uber, buddies, like, yeah. boom, the, like, you're just
1: always a student of the game. Do uh, you ever give up that student? Are you the master now? Or are you still learning? No, I'm, you know, when I told people earlier, I say you have to be able to put yourself in two to five words because if you don't know what your two to five words are, then you leave leave it up to everybody else to interpret who you are. And my two to five words, and they may change, and they will change, uh, have been, I'm on a quest. It is, I am in various different rooms, I'm in various different industries, and I am there to learn just as much, because if we're learning together, then we can share it. If I come in with this holier-than-thou, whatever the case is, you're not gonna open up. You're gonna sit there and go, this guy's either an idiot or, hmm, he's intimidating, right? So I tend to go and seek mentor still I I go after Seth Golden and say hey Seth whether you know it or not you're my adopted daddy you know or he was sitting in there one hour yeah you. I heard you I feel it, like right yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah, some, some um, or stronger, Jay I mean.
1: Abraham or any of these people. I go after mentors still because I'm still on a quest. I mean, I have the problem, I have to sit on a shark tank and Mark Cuban thinks he knows it all, right? I can't learn <laughs> anything from him. He was on this thing, right? I can't learn anything from this guy. I mean, he just keeps talking. I look for people who could teach me. I'm just joking, I learned no, learn no, from Mark as well. Well, that is actually the, the
0: underpinning for Creative Live is uh, lifelong learning I don't know who thought that we stopped learning when we ter- magically turn 18. For me, that's really when shit that mattered to me started, you know, coming into my field of view, and I started learning. Uh, how important is? Um, I, I'll give you my bias, so you don't diss me. My bias is sort of I, I don't disrespect the institution of education because it has a job to do. I think K through 12, it's got plenty of issues, um, but lifelong learning, to me, I feel like has broken because we believe as a country that people stop learning and so we stop taking care of those people. We start, uh, that's one of the reasons that online education has, has grown. What role does, do you, I think I get pissed when people look for other people to educate them. Yeah, You're clearly very active in your education. So yeah. how, how, is it something that you actively pursue or do you feel like it's something that happens to you?
1: I actively pursue it. Um, I do speak to a lot of kids and you know, when they ask about why are so many people successful that didn't go to school and things like that? I think that I think that some people need structure. Um, you know, I'm the kind of person that when I do go to the gym, I don't want a trainer because I want to listen to my music and read my goals and think about my day and, you know, I don't want nobody telling me to do this. But there are other people that are really efficient when they have a trainer because even though they know how many sit-ups, they, you know, whatever, they want somebody to discipline them. I think that, you know, we're all cut differently. One thing I do say that's pretty good is I think that if you learn and understand finance, business, accounting, and some of the things that no matter where you go in life, you need to know it. I think it's okay, uh, you know, getting a higher level of education, but it doesn't stop there. That's just the, the basics. You know, you have to then go out and apply it. So I believe that no matter what, you should still go and get higher learning education in business and the fundamentals of things that you can apply to everything in your life. And then after that, you have to go out and seek mentors, like-minded people, and go get literature and things of this nature. And every day, not just looking at the stupid things of the internet, but just you know, researching what's going on in the world. You talked, uh, you said the word
0: mentor many times. You've dropped names like Seth and- uh, Jay Abraham. Jay Abraham, yeah, Russell. Uh, anybody else that you want to give a shout out to that you haven't mentioned?
1: People that uh, are... My mother was my first mentor. It's um, powerful. Of course. The um, you know, teachers. The teachers that are out there that, you know, they are the first external mentors that our kids will come in, in touch with and many of them can, can hurt our kids and many of them can help our kids. And those who are, you know, I think teachers are the, the most undervalued asset in this, in this country for sure. Um, Because, you know, listen, I spent two weeks with my daughters, I wanted to kill myself, right? (laughs) Teachers spend 10 months with our kids. And, um, you know, and if I could, they would spend 12 months with mine. But um, they're really amazing. So they're mentors. and, And people always think that they need to find a mentor like you or myself or Jay Abraham. But my first mentor that wasn't a teacher, or wasn't my mother, was a guy named Tim who who ran a very small store in my neighborhood. But he had the store for 20 years. And I'd go over there and before the word interning was intern, I'd go sweep up and he would talk to me. I'd see how he would deal with his vendors, how he'd deal with the customers. And a mentor can be somebody who's been in your community and to run a successful business for 20 years, I don't care what business you're in. Yeah, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, right? So I think people should understand that they should go after mentors, but yes, I'm, he, um, life is a series of mentors, if you would really ask me to sum it all up. That's a great quote. Um, some, someone,
0: will gonna retweet the shit out of that one. <laughs> that's, that's some powerful stuff. Uh, let's talk about art, things that you can consume that you personally, Damon, consume. Uh, books, movies, Uh, documentary. We talked a little bit. We touched on some ones. I'm a big
1: documentary guy. I'm a big nature guy. I don't have much time now to consume too many things, so I don't go and watch any of the shows that could be addictive, like House of Cars or any of those things, because then I end up binging on them. Um, I'm not big into fine art, just because I don't know it that well enough in regards to collecting it. Um, But, you know, I love photography. Photography. I definitely love photography. Um, Yeah, so I have every what those big books are on photography, everything from the best butts in the world to the windows at Macy's. Um, so I really love photography. Um, um, I can't think of anything else at the moment when it comes to art, but. How about uh,
0: other people outside of mentors? Like you've mentioned peers. How how important is a peer group?
1: Well, you yeah, know, you constantly learning. You mean you're, you're like-minded people. Yeah, so, like-minded people. Like, yeah. Uh, going into business with
0: one another, I guess. You can think of Seth, and uh, and now you can call Obama. uh...
1: Yeah, and I learned learned from, of course, I love uh, Tim Ferriss. Mm -hmm. Um, He's really, really an amazing guy, Gary Vee. You know, all all the people that we all find a reason to follow. <laughs> yeah, a, you know,
0: it's a really small circle. Oh, it's it's a,
1: it's a small circle. Uh, Marie, yeah, Marie TV. Uh, you know, She's all gonna them. be on this series for sure. Yeah, Both no. those guys
0: are actually Tim and Gary. All there. No, and in and I circle. think you know,
1: it, it, is that the, weird that
0: we're all doing this stuff together? I guess I think
1: like-minded people, I think yeah. people are, uh You know, we see everybody moving in a certain direction, not the exact same direction, but doing the the same execution in a different way. Um, but no, it, it's you know and. It's really impressive. So, yeah, I do, I constantly am around just like minded people like that. We should give a shout out to Toby and Harley at Shopify. Toby and I'm Harley at Shopify, who put us oh, together initially. That's great. Right. Really, guys really are amazing so guys. High and you know, guys. Harley is uh, shorter than me, so I love him. <laughs> Same as Ryan Dice. I love him. You know, all the Harley, shorter I'm guys. Sorry, Any man. of you shorter than me? Holla at Ryan, Dice, Toby. Um, Yeah. Just a list of Not people. Toby. Um, is that another uh, list? You got your goal list and then a list of people who shorter, are shorter than me? Yes, <laughs> yes. People that I will take a picture with anytime they ask. The Even if they're the same height as me, I just call them shorter than me. I think they're the same
0: list. height. Oh, man, that's amazing. Uh, is it, there's got to be something that I didn't ask that you want to share with the people, home. And you're saying, no, man, I just No, want to I, come no, back I and feel show like I just gave birth, man. <laughs> I'm good. There you go. You just witnessed Damon John give birth. <laughs> on this show. I hope it was pleasant. No, uh, I want to give you a huge shout out, man. Thank, thank you man. so much, much Great respect. Great question, man, thank you. Much respect and gratitude. Folks at home. Best to you too, man. Uh, you just got to grapple with this knowledge now and get to work. And stay tuned for another episode coming very, very soon. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there, as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this also. Uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is ChaseJarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platform. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast and I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.